Hi everyone, and welcome to A Dog's Dark After Dark number 40, discussions with Jason Buck, who is at Jason Mutiny. So Jason is the co-founder and CIO of Mutiny Fund, a multi-asset and multi-manager fund, best known for volatility trading. So Jason's a veteran of Real Vision and actually on both sides as an interviewer and an interviewee. So those who subscribe to Real Vision, check him out there. And we're gonna talk about vol, and just to be clear, that means volatility, not volume. Um, why it matters, um, we're going to maybe try and make it less confusing, uh, dig into what long vol means. We're probably going to get sidetracked into weird things. Um, as always, it's not investment advice. Please do your own research. Jason, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. It's, uh, it's, I'm delighted to be on your podcast as an avid listener. Um, it's always awkward when you, you know you listen to a podcast at two times speed, and then when you're a guest on the podcast and you hear the person talking in a, in a normal voice is always a, a unique experience. You listen at two x. Wow, that's fast. One point five x is like doable, but wow. Yeah. You must process stuff faster than I do. So, well, you know, hopefully no one has to listen at point five x because that would be painful. <laughs> right, right, so. I hope I, I hope they go from like two x and then they have to back up and go to one x because that means we we said something smart that they had to go rewind for, but I, I doubtful it's going to come from my side, more from your side. I'm sure it will so come from your side. That is okay. Well, look, why don't we start with a quick intro to, to Jason and mutiny. So. Sure. So basically uh, I'm the co-founder of mutiny fund. Uh, my Taylor, uh, my partner, Taylor Pearson and I um, started up a few years ago and to try to work through this process of, you know, we had family and friends that came to us and they said, you know, I've read a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper. You know, I want to hedge my market risk. How do I do so? And we're like, do you have 20 to $100 million? And they're like, no. Well, like, well you're screwed. So uh, Taylor and I didn't like that answer. And as entrepreneurs, you know, we're problem solvers. And just figured there had to be a better way. Um, so it took you know, a few years and, and a lot of lawyers and, and getting over the regulatory hurdles to figure out, you know, how could we bring a long volatility tail risk product to retail investors? Um, and then we were able to you know, finally launch that in, in mid-April this year, where we use an ensemble of of active managers that trade long volatility and tail risk, and we allow access for retail investors starting at $100,000 US. Okay, cool. And so is that, did people have to be accredited or just have 100,000? Yeah, unfortunately they have to be accredited um, and, and then the 100,000. Although um, to be you know, honest, if you're putting 100,000 into a volatility you fund, you should be yeah, exactly. worth a million dollars to, and, yes. and be therefore accredited. So, because um, I don't think you want to be putting like half your net assets in a long vol fund. So. Exactly. And they're, and they're working on changing the accreditation rules right now for uh, maybe much more of an edu educational accreditation, because as you know, like your, your IQ doesn't uh, go up by 40 points once you somehow make a million dollars. So it, hopefully it, that changes it's the time. most stupid law. <laughs> I mean, in Europe, it just doesn't exist. Um, right. I'm sorry, in UK, I don't know about all of Europe, but um, I mean, I think if you can prove you've, yeah, I like the idea if you can educate, educate yourself and then pass something and then, you know, fine. I mean, I mean, hey, people with money make some really dumb decisions too. So, um, anyways, so well, let's let, let, let's see where we end up. But why don't we start with really basic stuff? So, you know, why does vol so volatility matter? Sure. So, I'll go back. So, originally, I was a, a commercial real estate developer, right? And when you're an entrepreneur, and especially in a in a physical entrepreneurial space, you have to project out projects anywhere from let's say two to five to ten years. And, and when you're thinking about what is my return on investment going to be over that time span, you're using um, what the market environment currently looks like. 
So you want volatility to be suppressed or you don't want volatility to rise in any way, shape or form or else it can affect your, your profit and loss over that time span. So essentially you're what we would call implicitly short volatility. You do not want volatility to come into the marketplace. You want the market to be flat or rising. So that way you can get the payout you're expecting two to five to 10 years hence. So that's why we say, you know, a lot of uh, what we call long GDP uh, investments. So basically you're, you're long the market, you're, you're long as an entrepreneur because you're, you're trying to plan ahead. Um, those are implicitly short volatility because you don't want the market to move around a lot. You want the market to stay relatively flat or in a tight band. That way you can kind of, you can use your, your modeling to make sure you try to make a profit. When volatility picks up in markets, and it usually happens, you know, when we have like a sell-off in the S&P, which uh, when, when you have a liquidity crunch, you know, the correlations start to go to one. And, and what that means is that all of those long GDP investments that you thought you were diversified with, let's call it stocks, bonds, venture, uh, private equity, uh, real estate, all of those things that you thought were diversified in a normal portfolio, in a liquidity event or a market crash, those correlations go to one and all of those things go down together. So you thought you were diversified over that risk on cycle, but when a risk off event happens, you're essentially short volatility. And when that volatility spikes, you're, everything's going down together because liquidity dries up and everybody's trying to go to cash. So if you're long volatility, you're on the other side of that trade. And so when the market crashes, you're trying to you know, spike and make money during a market crash. So if you think about the balance of the portfolio is if you, know, you have a lot of implicit short volatility assets on your books, you want to balance those out with long volatility. So when a market crash happens, you know, you have a, an asset that goes up when markets go down and you can rebalance between those two, you know, implicit short volatility and, and long volatility assets. And that helps, you know, compound your wealth all the time over time. And the reason it does so is because it reduces volatility at the portfolio level because volatility or variance is a, is a drag on returns over time. So if you don't have to take, you know, a, a, 50% drawdown in your S&P portfolio, if you only have to take a 10 to 20% drawdown, and then you're able to buy back in at that, at that lower nav point for the S&P, you're able to compound your wealth more effectively or efficiently over time. And so the one I've always struggled with is gold. Because yeah. let's, let's say March this year, I mean, look, March this year was obviously a perfect <laughs> illustration of all this. Um, gold obviously plummeted. Um, and but having said that, in these kind of non-liquidation events, it, it can be an interesting kind of protector of value. Um, and I've just, I've noticed in your interviews, you never put gold in the bucket of short <laughs> I, uh, I mean, you because... put basically every other asset class that exists in the multiverse in it, but not gold. So, but I haven't heard you talk about that specifically. So. Uh, it, there's a very good reason why I don't, and because you just brought it up, is I don't know what gold is, right? I've been studying gold for over 20 years, and I still can't tell you what it is, right? And so uh, partially part of that is, you know, everybody in, maybe we'll come back to this many times throughout this conversation, is uh, uh, temporality issues, right? So if you look at gold, you know, over thousands of years, gold is a long volatility asset, or more important, it, it provides purchase power parity. Meaning, you know, the, the cost of a, a bespoke suit 100 years ago or the cost of, uh, of a knight's armor, you know, a thousand years ago, or, you know, hundreds to a thousand years ago is the same price now based on gold, right? So it's at purchase power parity through time. The problem is when you're looking over thousands of years, it looks like it makes sense. But over, you know, a few years or a decade, it may lag. So you don't know 
exactly if it's going to be there when you need it. And this is why I, was, I, I started with liquidity events, is when we have February, March, which is much more of an endogenous liquidity event, everybody's going to cash. And so they're going to sell things they don't want to sell. And one of those things is gold. So especially if I have like GLD or, you know, any of the ETF structures, so I have a very liquid form of something, I'm going to sell it off because I have to go to cash under any means necessary. So frequently in liquidity events, uh, it happened in 2008 as well, gold went down at first before, you know, the, we, we reach a bottom. And then if, if you know, if, if people, if the fear is still there and we have a prolonged recession or people have a fear of potential inflation, then you'll see gold start to rise um, over the next, you know, six to 24 months. Um, but it does not provide that that acute uh, ballast to a liquidity event. I th yeah, no, I, 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 that's why I asked the question. I thought it was a little tricky. Yeah. Um, although it's interesting though, because if if well, let's get more advanced. So if you if you so one of the sure. things I've always held is like uh, leaps. So uh, for those mm -hmm. listening, so so basically um, long term equity um, anticipation um, securities, and so. Um, so for example, you could buy GLD options. So I bought GLD options in 2019, in the middle of 19, when vols fairly low, it was probably at like, I can't remember, 12 or 13% or something. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was buying them like two or three years out. Um, and mm -hmm. they were slightly out the money, but not massively, because the kind of the, the, the skew would go a bit against you if you go too far out the money. And um um, and they were very interesting in March because the gold price plummeted, but the vault went nuts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they actually pretty much kept their value. I think they lost a little bit, but not much considering these were options and the underlying just got crushed. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I know it's just kind of maths at the end of the day. Um, but, um, you know, sometimes you can, the thing I like about these long-haul strategies, you can get some protections that you weren't necessarily expecting to happen. Sure. And that's actually, a, um, I think this is a great entry point for us. So you were long out of the money uh, to your calls on gold? Yeah, for two example, years and that... three years. They were mid-21 and mid-22 expiry. Just okay. on GLD. And, and just long, you weren't running a, a strangle, right? I was just long. Very simple. Okay. So there's there's an interesting plays, uh, multiple facets to what you did, right? So the, that necessarily wasn't a play on gold per se. I mean, I guess it's a directional bet on gold. But the longer out you you buy options, the more of it it's a vega play, uh, mean a volatility play. So when you're when you're closer um, in in time or tenor, it's much more of a gamma play. You're worried about the acceleration of your deltas. But as you get deeper um, out in the time spectrum or tenor spectrum, it's more of a vega play. You're looking for an expansion of that implied volatility. So what's fascinating about what you just said is if you're long calls, you know, two, three years out, and when you're buying in, you have a low implied volatility environment, then if you have a, a market correction and, or implied volatility spikes or expands like we had in February, March, even though you're on the wrong side of the trade directionally, you are still primarily a long Vega trade or long implied volatility trade. And as that IV expands, even though you're directionally going in the opposite direction, you're making money off the Vega, the implied volatility expansion. So it's basically like somebody wants to let you out of that trade and they're willing to pay up for it. So it's an interesting thing. Like I know managers that were actually uh, long S&P going into February and because implied volatility expanded so quickly, they were able to take a profit on the long S&P side because of the Vega expansion. And they, even though they were directionally in the wrong direction. Right, exactly. And 
it's probably more accurate to say I lost less money. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, exactly. That's, a, that's actually, a better way of looking at it. Um, um, but um, yeah, I did sell some because I'm like, well, look, the vol's gone up. I think I sold half of what I had because I also like, well, I also have these for the long term, like you're saying for the whole kind of, you know, fiat debasement argument. But like, um, it's like, well, vol's going to come mean revert to some degree at some point. So, and then unless the underlying goes up by two, 300 bucks, which actually it did do, um, so actually these things are now worth more. So I, I guess I should have helped them, but such is life. Um, and just, okay. So, so we just had a, a lot of, of Greeks. So we just had half the alphabet. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Vega just basically people can think of volatility. That's kind of easy. Uh, you hear theta a lot of the time, which is mm-hmm. just time in effect. So mm-hmm. really what you're doing, the way I think of it is like, I don't, you may think this is silly, but like, you know, basically the more time you have, you have, the more time there is on an option, the more time there is for basically Vega to happen. Um, and the more time there is for things to just move up, down, whatever. And therefore um, there's basically going to be a bigger expected spread and what the option, uh, what the results could be. And then it's therefore worth more money. Um, but do you want to explain the, uh, the gamma Delta bit as well? Sure. So let me, let me step back for a second. The, what I like about both of us is uh, we like to, um, challenge ourselves and, and deep dive into new industries. And what, what you find is every industry has a, a prohibitive nomenclature that you have to learn. But at the end of the day, every, every part of every, every industry is the same. You know, if it boils down to, you know, income minus, minus expenses is profit, but they might use very different uh, words and nomenclature to derive that, that, that keeps the, uh, the outsiders from, from learning what they're doing. You know, whether it's, you know, real estate, we talk about cap rates or, you know, if we're talking about options, we're talking about the Greeks, all of that stuff is just, it's, it's just a moat to keep outsiders out. So once you learn that it's, 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 you know, fairly uncomplicated. It's just trying to get past that hurdle rate. Um, and then thinking about, Vega and theta, as you said, is, is Vega's volatility and theta's time is another way to think about it as uh, Ben Mal Mandelbrot said so well is you have volatility in the arrow of time and that volatility and time are related or sometimes the same thing is that en- as enough time passes, um, the dispersion will, means we'll hit every, every point on that curve or every price point. So the longer that time goes on, the more likely you have a, a volatility expanding. So that's one way to look at uh, Vega and theta. And then to answer your direct question, um, Delta is the relation to the, your exposure to the underlying. And wh- what that means is if you buy an at-the-money option, um, you basically have the right but not the obligation to buy if you're buying options. And you are buying at, at the money means a 50 delta. And what that means is for every you know, one point move in the underlying, you're going to experience 50% of that move. That's basically what a 50 delta is. And so as you go you know, further out of the money, you might buy 10 or 20 deltas, meaning for every one point move in the, the underlying, um, you'll move you know, 10 or 20%, you 10 or 20 delta. Um, so that's, that's deltas. And then what gamma is, is that actually the acceleration of deltas into that underlying. So as, as the underlying moves you know, closer to the money, those deltas are going to accelerate. So if you bought a you know, deep out of the money you know, call or put, that's 10 delta, um, as the underlying moves in your direction, the deltas will accelerate. So gamma is more the the acceleration or what we call convexity. Uh, uh, if you can look at the convexity of a curve, that accelerates as you become closer at the money. Those de- those deltas will accelerate um, as the market sells. Let's say if you bought a put, as the market sells off, your your convexity will accelerate, and gamma is the acceleration of your deltas um, towards the underlying. 
Right, and I think that, so what, what, what I thought was a interesting thing that I had to kind of dive into and learn was when to sell options when they're going your way. Um, mm. As in, sorry, not to sell options, but to take profits on options you right. bought. Right. Because the whole holy grail, of course, is you can all think, oh, well, in my example before, well, if gold goes to 3,000, then it's blah, blah, blah. It's kind of easy to work <laughs> yeah. out, but the world's generally not that simple. Yeah. And, um, and like, how do you think through, because the holy grail is getting that, like, as you said, that kind of huge increase in gamma leading to massive convexity. And then you could go from like 3x to 10x on something really quite quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And, but, but, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's always very tempting, of course, to just book some profits. Um, are there any kind of rules of thumb or ways you think through that dynamic? Sure. This is actually, I think, the, the most difficult question um, in long volatility retail restraining is, is how do you monetize? Um, but let me, let me kind of take a step back for a second. You know, when you brought up, you know, buying leaps, you know, two or three years, you know, out, and then you're likely to roll them at some point. Um, you know, like I said, that's more of a, a long vague play. You're just looking at uh, volatility to expand. But what I w- you have to think about too, is you have to worry about drift. So if I'm buying, you know, let's say puts on the S and P, but I'm buying them two years out and I, I buy, you know, negative 20% out of the money two years out, but over the first year, the market has an upward drift of 20 to 30% before it shanks off that 20 to 30%. I'm now not touched my strike. So I've actually moved so far away from my initial strike that I don't have the protection that I once thought I did. So that's one uh, risk you have. Uh, and I'm just going to bring back all the different risks to think about monetization is you have that drift risk. If you're if you're going longer out and you're not rolling as frequently, you can have that you know drift in the, in the delta away from where your strike is originally um, located. So then, so that's why I said the longer ones are Vega play. The shorter dated ones are Gamma play because you're looking for the acceleration of Delta. So if you're trading monthly options or even weekly, you have a lot of Gamma um, kind of embedded there. You can have that acceleration, but you have a ton of Theta. The shorter you you have your your time bleed. So it's theta is time decay. So that's going to bleed off faster um, a lot of times than, than you know, you're waiting for the convexity of your option to pay out if it doesn't move towards your strike. So there's all these trade-offs as far as, uh, you know, your gamma, your vega, and your theta. And so it makes for no easy trades, so to speak. And so this is why monetization is the most difficult heuristic because um, another way to look at monetization is rolling. So if we're looking at those, those leaps that you're buying, you have to think about rolling at some point, and that's a form of, of monetization or what we call restriking your deltas. Um, and so you have that risk, the longer, farther out, you can get that drift. Uh, when you're closer um, in time or tenor, when you're having those weekly or monthlies, um, you know, that theta decay is going to really bleed you out. And so you have to think about monetization. And then actually the hardest part of monetization is actually like, as you alluded to, is once you're actually in profit, once your PL is in profit, you know, how do you take money off the table knowing, especially if you're protecting yourself from another downside move? Um, so you monetize, you know, all that position and take all those profits. But then what if you get a, a, a double dip from there and, you know, you, you monetize that negative 20% down on the S and P you monetize all your position and then it shanks off another 20%. So it's negative 40% down and now you have no protection. So it's, it's a very complicated thing about how do you monetize? Um, and so some people use, um, uh, ratchet like effects. I think like, uh, Jerry Hayworth at 36 South, he says for every, you know, um, exponential move up, he'll, he'll tighten his stops. So if they have a, a 5x move in their option position, he might 
uh, bring his stops up from uh, you know, 50% up to like 30%. And then if he has a 10x move, he might tighten those up to 20%. And so he's, he's creating a more ratchet-like effect for his stop, um, thinking about as, the, as he moves more and more into the money. Um, other ways to look at it is a, is a time stop. You know, if you have, you know, multiple tenors of, of strikes, meaning you have one month, two month, three month, um, you know, you may, you know, once you go to roll your first month, you know, whether it's two weeks into that month, every time you're rolling, it's a form of monetization or restriking, as I said. So, you know, the heart, and then as you alluded to, sometimes with your gold is like, you can have a position, you know, come dramatically in the money. You have a huge payout, but if you don't monetize it, it can also mean revert just as quickly and now you no longer have a profit. So that's the hard, really hard part about volatility as you know, it either mean reverts or it clusters and it's almost impossible a priority to know what situation you're in because you always, there's, you move from a, there's a volatility has a bimodal distribution in, in low volatility environments. Um, you know, fix can be around 10 to 12 on average. And then in a high volatility environment, it's around 20 to 22 on average, but it's a bimodal distribution. And in between, you usually have a violent phase shift, but it's, you know, impossible to know, um, you know, when that shift's necessarily going to happen. So this is why uh, we view the hardest part about uh, long volatility terror risk is monetization. And so the way we handle it is we use an ensemble of managers that all have different monetization heuristics to know that way we're going to capture the meat of that payout. You know, we're worried much more about signal than noise and we want to capture as much signal as possible. So if we have different managers that have different trading styles and different monetization heuristics, we're trying to make sure we, we monetize it uh, in multiple ways. So that way we can, we can monetize it, whether it's a, a full-on move to a higher volatility environment, or even if the move mean reverts, we still want to capture some of those profits as well. Yeah, no, I, that's interesting. And that's why, I mean, of course, not everyone listening can do that, but, um, but that makes a lot of sense. And um, for those listening who maybe have like one or two positions, look, if, if, if you're like five, 10 ups up, five or 10 X up on something and you're just not sure. And let's say vol has gone up and whatever the asset is a lot, you think it might mean revert. Like there's really very, it's very rare. There's a, it's going to be silly to take some profits. Um, yeah. In, in, I, in I, effect, I, that's what I did with the gold trade. Cause then I, bought another bunch of, I actually just waited and got out half of it and then rebought back in, maybe it was three months ago from now when gold vol went down to about 14. Um, it had that period where it kind of consolidated um, at like 1760 or something, 1780. Um, and, um, and then I bought some more three-year GLD calls. Mm. Um, and then I just want to make sure, I, yeah, I didn't talk, I hate when people talk around your question. So yeah, to answer it more specifically with what you're saying, is it's always good to have some sort of tranched or you know monetization heuristics where you're taking a little bit off the table that's a, like a ratchet like effect is is a great way for for novice or retail traders to to manage those positions but i think i've, I've heard you talk about it before you it takes enormous discipline right and you may write it down before and exactly what you're going to do but as you know when that when that gamma spikes and and you have all of a sudden you went you know you have huge convexity and something that was almost zero value before is now worth 10x uh, your heart's racing and, and you're, you're questioning yourself about everything you're doing. And so to stick uh, to your journal of what you said you were going to do is, is, is much easier said than done, but hopefully people can manage that in the, in the time of crisis. That's why everyone needed to have traded Bitcoin in 2017 and 18 <laughs> um, because it's sort of like a convex option in itself. So like, if you look at its vol, its vol at the time was triple figures most of the time. So like, um, anyone that's traded that market and, and look, there's other markets, of course, that, I mean, 
let's look at oil this year as well. Um, I think sometimes you just got to experience these things. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, experience though, but like I, I'll push back a little bit on Bitcoin. I guess it, it matters. It matters, uh, you know, as um, Danny Kahneman would talk about, it's like it matters a lot more about your age, the percentage of net worth in the trade and right. like and your family situation. Right. It's one thing to be, you know, 19 years old and you don't, you don't really have a net worth. So all of it's in Bitcoin or it's another thing to be 40 and it's only 1% of your net worth in Bitcoin. And then you see that volatility, but it's another thing to be, you know, 50 with a family and you see a huge spike in, in volatility. And now it's gone from 1% to 20% of your net worth. Now, now you're, now you can't sleep at night. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. And that's actually been a problem for me with Bitcoin. And, um, exactly. And, exactly. But, but I believe in it long-term a lot. So it, it's, I mean, I spoke to Raul about this a few times. And I mean, we did a little bit on the podcast, but like, um, it's a tricky one. Um, and, and his position is gigantic. Um, and if it does what he thinks it's going to do, it's, it's going to make all his other positions irrelevant. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. If you want. Well, it, it, or if it doesn't do what it says it's going to do, it might make his other positions irrelevant as well. So I think this is a good point to point out. I, I like, um, I love your fascination with global macro and how you, you know, it's, it's a really amazing siren song to the, um, to the intellectual individual. But, you know, my concern is, you know, if when, you know, people really have to do their own work with global macro and that's why I love watching you're, you're showing in real time, your own work with global macro, which is fascinating. But like, you know, if, if, if Raul says I have a 25 or 50% position in Bitcoin, what people forget is global macro guys can change their mind tomorrow. So just because Raul does it, I wouldn't do it. You know, you have to do your own work and because these guys can change their mind overnight. Yeah, I think uh, Keith McCullough is probably the most out there person that will change his mind intraday. And yeah. of course, if you don't subscribe, I mean, I do subscribe to Hedgeye. I think Keith's great, but he does troll people on Twitter quite deliberately. So the latest one is he's gone um, uh, short US dollar again. Um, but it's very tight. And now everyone's kind of complaining that he's changed his mind. He's like, yeah, but I've got a process and a framework and that's why I've changed my mind. And, you know, do you really expect I'm going to give you all the information you need on my Twitter feed? <laughs> like, you know, I'm trying to run a business here. But it, it, well, it's, that and, yeah. yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that and Keith has multiple temporalities, right? Uh, in, his, in his four, yes. you know, four quadrant framework, he might be trading part of the book on a multi-year cycle and part of the book on an intraday cycle. And that's what, you know, people have to take into account. And even like George Soros would change his positioning based on his back pain. So, I mean, how are you, you know, it's, you can't just follow these guys and, and expect to, um, you know, reap the awards they do. I mean, they, they, they fought for their, for their intellectual endeavors, rightly or wrongly. And then, you know, you can't just copy these things blindly. Right. I, I, I a million percent agree with that. And, um, Unfortunately, though, I think we live in a world where a lot of people think, well, you know, I subscribe to, I don't know, 2000 bucks a year or whatever to Hedgeye for like most of the products. And well, they should be able to do all my intellectual thinking for me. And I just want to kind of, I should be able to just press a button and it's all good. Um, I think anyone listening that thinks that like macro investing is probably not for you. Um, and um it's also very different if you're in the US versus not US, um, just due to time zones. Um, so, um, for example, anyway, this isn't going to be like a whole thing on Hedgeye, but like, for example, there might be 20 trades in a day and you wake up to them or the market's shut and you were sleeping. So it's like, you've got to kind of work out what your niche is and all of this. And, and I use services like that really to aggregate data and views. And then, you know, you kind of got to put your own view on top of it. So, like you said, well, you and I have talked about before, it's like, 
you have all the time in the world to devote to this, right? And what, what fascinates me is, you know, there's certain um, aspects or environments in life where people think they can do it on the side as a dilettante, as a dilettante and it's, it's shocking to me. Like, I think friend Adria from El Bulli, uh, you know, was one of the great, the number one restaurant in the world, three Michelin stars, et cetera. When it was and open, said, when it was open. Yeah, when it, well, exactly, when it was open. Neither, I never made it. Oh. I about to say, based on, I could tell by the tone of your voice that I neither of us ever got a reservation. It. So, yeah. So, but he used to talk about if, if food wasn't so uh, quotidian and that we didn't eat it three times a day, um, you would look at his artwork with food as the same, with the same reverence as you would with a, a great painting. But because, you know, we all feel we can do it, we all might buy an LBE cookbook and think we can replicate it, right? And I feel like kind of the same way a lot of times about trading is just because like you can buy an option. Um, it's relatively easy to put on that trade. But as we're talking about the, the monetization and everything else and, and the vault services are incredibly complex. And you have, you know, whether it's, you know, Chris Cole at Artemis that, you know, they're, they're devoted 24-7 to this. And they have a team of PhD quants devoted 24-7 to this. So what makes you think on a, on a weekend you can kind of, you know, pick up where they left off is kind of insane to me. Because stocks only go up. That's the point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Until they don't. But anyways, so here's an interesting one we were discussing before. So we're going to wind coffee into this just to confuse people. So, um, so basically Jason came up with a new anecdote, which is not battle tested. So let's just go for it. Um, <laughs> and we're going to talk about basically sizing. So for example, you could be, let's say you're worth $10,000 or a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, or indeed you could be Bridgewater and managing, I think about $200 billion. Um, can, can these different sizes make the same trades? Um, you know, can I, you know, if I want, if, if there's long tail risk, I want to hedge and I'm managing a hundred thousand bucks versus a hundred billion. Is it the same options open to me or, or are there some fundamental differences? There's, there's several differences and hopefully I can remember. I can usually remember maybe two things at once, but I'm trying to remember four nuances to what you just said. So we'll see how I do. But we brought up uh, coffee earlier because we were talking about, you know, uh, third wave coffee or especially coffee roasters are doing, you know, an amazing job with coffee these days. But there would be no third wave without the second wave of Starbucks. So they all should pay some sort of homage to Starbucks. But as you brought up with Starbucks is if, if you're roasting, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of coffee a day across, you know, thousands of stores worldwide, you have a very different scale problem than a local roaster that's, that's roasting by hand. So there's what we were saying is there's different levels to this game. And so the way we were relating it to is if, if I'm an individual investor or I'm, I'm managing, you know, like say 10 million or less or hundred million or less, I have a very different dynamic than a $200 billion uh, Bridgewater or a Canadian pension plan. And uh, some of the nuances to look at that is like, let's say the VIX markets, for example, uh, VIX markets are fairly nascent, especially the VIX futures market, which everything derives from. And they didn't really get ramp up trading till somewhere between 2010 and 2012. You know, and you've seen these VIX ETPs and everything, which have brought a lot more retail players to the market. But, you know, an average um, VIX specific hedge fund can probably only manage anywhere between 100 and 500 million in these cash settled futures markets, right? And so there's a capacity constraint there. So that gives you an idea of where the VIX market's capacity constraint is, right? And then if you're, if you're buying options on, let's say the SPX or even the E-mini, you can probably manage, you know, three to 5 billion, even if you're buying, you know, at the money straddles like a, like a Logica is, if you're only dealing in the cash settled markets um, and, and the listed markets on, on, the, uh, on the futures and options exchanges. 
And so this begs a very interesting question in general is, okay, if I can only, if they're cash settled at the end of the day, and these are the markets I can only handle with cash, how do, you know, if there's trillions uh, of long GDP investments out there, how could you possibly hedge those if I can only maybe get, you know, upwards of 5 billion in, in options exposure on the cash settled markets? Well, then you have to go what we call OTC or over the counter, where you have you you create counterparty risk because now you have to buy those options with an investment bank and you have to get an ISDA contract, which usually means you have to have a hundred million plus under management, and then you now have the counterparty risk of different banks. So you try to offset that by having multiple banks that you're 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 buying or selling options with as your counterparty. And so now, if you're managing two hundred billion dollars and you're trying to offset, you know, one hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of that risk. Um, it's not really necessarily achievable to buy that many options. You know, it's, you're, you're have to offset, you know, you know, 150, $200 billion in notional exposure. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of product out there. And then now you have the over the counter party risk of like, if those options were to pay out, those, those investment banks are going to be deeply in trouble like they were in 2008. Um, they've gotten a little bit better in 2008 with trying to have cash sweeps every 24 hours. But you know, I don't doubt, uh, investment bankers' ability to screw you when when shit hits the fan, so you always have to worry about your counterparty risk. Um, so that's, that's a couple of ways of of looking at uh, scale and and, and size. Um, and I'm forgetting the fourth one, so maybe it'll come back to me. That's okay. I mean, there was there used to be an instrument until rates at zero, which did give you that depth and hedgeability, which was euro dollar calls. Um, but now we're at zero short-term rates in US. Well, I guess you know, mm. I, well, it's actually LIBOR, but um, it's, yeah, I mean, that's a super deep liquid market. Um, and, um, but yeah. now, now it's sort of lost it, unless you believe in negative rates, it's sort of a completely different ball game now. So I think that, that, that just that huge liquid, that market alone, leave it in effect, not being now useful for what it was useful for a year ago, I think is actually quite, quite an interesting, important thing that isn't really talked about very much. So. Sure. And that's, uh, and I remember the fourth one, so I'll come back to, but you're right with the Euro dollars and, and you, you know, that's, it's a, it's a good hedge, but it's actually goes back to your gold question initially too, is uh, you take, you have to take basis risk. So it's also about what you're actually protecting against, right? If you're protecting as an S&P sell-off, you know, Euro dollar gold, they should have an effect, but it doesn't guarantee it, right? There should be some negative correlation there, but you really don't know because you have basis risk because you're not specifically uh, hedging, you're not specifically buying a structural hedge against the S&P 500. So that's, that's one issue you're dealing with. Um, the other thing I was thinking about to different levels to this game is that maybe what can be confusing about people that come from an equity environment over into the maybe options is uh, for the most part, equities is like a, a zero sum game, right? They're matching up buyers and sellers. And, you know, maybe you have the, the high frequency firms in between trying to create the you know, depth of that order book. But when you're talking about options, it's not necessarily a, a buyer and seller zero sum game. Um, there's different uh, economic players and, and they may be buying or selling options for what we perceive as non-economic reasons. And so what I mean by that is there's always dealers in between. So let's say at scale, like you said, you have this $200 billion uh, Canadian pension fund and, and they want to you know, buy options, uh, deep out of the money options to protect you know, against their book. Well, you know, if, if they need to buy, you know, $10 billion worth of options, you know, the dealer has to set them up with that trade. So the dealer is going to take on that risk, but dealers don't like directional risk. So they're going to hedge that risk uh, with the underlying futures. 
And then over time, they're going to try to also offset that risk to maybe the smaller players in the retail. And so this is what I mean. There's, there's, there's different dynamics in that it's not zero sum. You can have somebody that has a different temporal uh, framework for what they're looking to do or hedge their books in different ways, whether that's they're hedging commodity risk or they're hedging S&P risk. And they may be looking out years in advance where you as an individual may have a much shorter time frame and, and you're looking to hedge something else. So it's not necessarily zero sum. It can be win-win. It has to do with there's not, uh, you know, there's, there's the dealers in between and people have different economic interests and especially a pension plan. If they're trying to hit a target return, they're going to keep selling more and more vol as vol becomes suppressed, which makes them sell more vol, it, it creates this feedback loop that they're, they're looking for a target return, not necessarily worried too much about the exposure of the selling of that volatility. And, and then quite frankly, on the, on the size issue again, you know, everybody makes fun of these pension funds when they, they blow up selling vol, they say, you know, they lost $2 billion. Well, if they lost $2 billion, but their book is 200 billion, is it really that big of an issue? You know, $2 billion is a lot to you and me, but it's not to somebody manage 200 billion. Yeah, I, well, I was going to make a joke about that. It's just a daily swing for me, but that's not true. So, <laughs> or maybe in some weird currency, but two billion yeah, exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to pick up on though was um, I see a lot of people on FinTwit saying that they're kind of holding. They're basically saying they're trading the VIX, and you dig a little bit, and 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 you realize they're holding these underlying ETP products you talked about, like VXX or VIXY, which aren't. It, it, well, I mean, the VIX is just a computed thing, right? So it's like, and and if, like I and I like to say to them, well, look, guys, how long are you holding this for? And they've often said, oh, you know, yeah. maybe six months or a year until there's a spike involved. Ouch. I'm like, well, have you checked the chart from the last <laughs> ten years for VXX? Because a million dollars is now worth one dollar, and they say, well, you're obviously insane, Chris. That's not possible. And then they go and check the chart, and they go, yeah. oh, whoops, I didn't quite understand this product. So. Are these, but having said that, there are lots of people that trade this very successfully and for good reasons. So, is th is this really just sort of a specialist group of products, or and is it really to go structurally long vol much much better just to be using options, um, or is there something here for kind of less experienced investors? I'm trying to think of the different ways I want to answer this. One is um, if you just want to go structurally long vol, I believe it's better to just be buying options because uh, as Nancy Davis calls it, it's debit card investing, right? You're paying that premium up front. So you yeah. know what your max loss can be. You just don't know what your return is. And that's really actually surprisingly hard for people to understand is like, if you don't know what your return is going to be, that throws people off, but, but you know what your loss is going to be. You know, I, there's a lot of behavioral economics in there. Um, and then as far as the, you know, hedging with VIX is, you know, most professional managers are going to use the futures markets. Um, but don't get me wrong, there's some great professional managers that use the ETPs, which is the, the VIX ETFs and ETNs. Um, but there's some issues there, like you said. Um, not only is because the, the ETPs are based on the VIX futures, which are based on a term structure. So the VIX is actually non-tradable, the actual VIX index, and that's what we call spot VIX. But they created a futures market out of VIX. And for most of the time, that, that for, that there's a term structure, which most of the time is in contango. All that means is as we move out into the future, the curve rises. And so therefore, when you're buying these ETPs um, and going long VIX, they, the term structure is embedded in there. And, and it's, it's the roll down bleed of that term structure as it goes from, you know, uh, one month out and ro rolls down towards spot. And that's why it goes, like you said, if you look at the back chart from going a million dollars to one dollar, it's because you have the term structure. And, it's, and I think just like me, you're shocked by how many people will trade 
uh, VIX ETPs and not realize they're uh, didn't right. know nothing I, about the underlying I think term average, structure. You, I think I saw that on average you lose six percent a month just because of yeah. the, basically contango. This happened, of course, with USO this year, and has, yep. it's happened. And, and although that's in effect been well, they've changed a lot. Or again, I'm 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 very cautious of these products for like a retail investor that's spending a couple of hours a week looking into this. Like, yep. I just think guys be careful um, and really know what you're, you're buying. Uh, this and, and you said so perfectly, it's caveat emptor, especially if you're buying to hold long-term, these are terrible products. But if somebody's a more of a professional intraday trader, it's not really the, as big of an issue. Right. And also, Hey, there's an election in two weeks. Well, you know what? That's a really good example of, yep. you know what, you know, check. And also the way VXX works is I think they're each day they're putting that they're slightly putting more from the next, most forward the next contract so it kind of slowly changes there isn't like a sudden shift um but um but hey you know if there's something in two weeks uh, and you think there's going to be a volatility spike because of that well that is actually probably a good use of them um now it may already be priced in of course and maybe there's not right. much as you know, there's, there's quite a lot of extra volatility in the next kind of month um yep. So, you know, but I'm just saying, you know, if you think there's going to be even more volatility for whatever reason, if you subscribe to, you know, fed up, who's been on twice, like his anarchy theory, um, then, um, you know, th there are uses for these products. So don't get me wrong, but just please, please understand them. Actually read the fact sheet and even yeah. more than the fact sheet, there's the actual prospectus, which isn't exactly worded to be fun to read, but at least you understand how it works. I'm curious your take on this though. Like I think about this often is like, you know, we see it all the time is how many trader, I mean, how many uh, novice or retail traders are, are either buying VIX ETPs or even buying options and not knowing their Greeks or, or, or knowing uh, what's priced in, so to speak. And so, you know, they're, they're bound to lose money. Right. And is that a good or a bad thing to be an officer? I, I think that, you know, we've all been there and made those mistakes and, and when we're, especially when we're younger and you, you learn from that, you either, it either blows you out and you never get back in the game or it blows you out, but you're, you are recoverable from there. And then you start to learn, okay, maybe I need to learn these Greeks. What does all this mean? And so, like you said, part of it, if you're trading VIX, there's term structure trades. And, and so you think, oh, I'm so smart. I'm, I'm going to go long volatility in this election. And you don't realize the term structure makes it so there's no easy trades. So if you're going, you know, long vol in the election, you're going to get crushed by, crushed by that, that rise in, in volatility of the, of the term structure. And then if you're trying to go short volatility after election, it's in, it's in backwardation. So you're going to get yeah. crushed <laughs> by the term structure. So there's, there's no easy trades. And then you think about um, going back to what I said is that it's not a zero-sum game. There's dealers in between when you're buying options. So you go, great, I'm going to go long Tesla calls, right? But you don't realize those dealers are bidding up the one, the bid-ask spread, but also they're pushing up that implied volatility. So you may be even directionally right and not make any money because you paid too much implied volatility and volatility is crushed back down. So there's a lot of nuances, these trades, and there's no easy trades. Right. And I mean, it's actually interesting. If I look at before I started doing a lot of interviews on this podcast, my most popular um, pods were when I was just talking on my own, but when I talked about my mistakes and when I talked about how hard things are. Mm -hmm. and I, that's why I did a second one about how hard things are. Um, because on FinTwit, you, you, everyone's a billionaire. Um, and <laughs> and, and to, to answer your question, like, so I had several, I had discussions with several people and I often take it to DMs um, to take it out the public and just say, look, I mean, and I did promise them and they're probably listening that I would cover this with someone that knows what they're talking about with this, which is you, Jason. Um, and because they, they didn't want to 
believe me at first because they thought they had outsmarted everyone. Um, and of course, if you're Citadel, I think you've probably had this idea and you <laughs> like, you know, in, in your, I, one of the biggest market makers pricing a lot of this stuff. Um, so, um, but, but, you know, having said all that, it doesn't mean if you're a newbie, you can't come up with good trades. Um, exactly. You know, I mean, absolutely. So interestingly, I mean, let me, I'll talk through one I put on Twitter recently, which got different reactions. Um, and Twitter is really hard to explain a trade, but just, it was just yesterday. So I bought a GC, so that's gold futures, straddles. Mm-hmm. Um, the implied volatility was just under 20%, which isn't that great, but uh, they realized for the last 30 days is about 15. Um, mm-hmm. but, but these are for November and December expiry. So volatility for everything to your point before, because the contango is a little higher um, for November and December. But the reason I did it, it wasn't really a vol trade. It was actually, I'm like, well, coming into the election, there's, I, I believe there's whatever happens in the result, there's either going to be a giant stimulus that the market thinks is awesome, or it's going to be piddly small or nothing. And the market thinks is crappy. And gold could go up or down a lot. And for me, the stimulus is quite binary. So I'm like, well, and I thought, well, is TLT the best way to express that? And I'm like, well, maybe not because the Fed could come in and you don't know what they're going to do. But to be honest, they don't monkey around the gold market as much. And I know some listeners have now had a heart attack because they think precious metals are the most corrupt market in the world. And maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, But like the point is, is like it was less of a volatility trade, but more like, well, actually buying a straddle on that's quite interesting. If you think there's a a binary event coming Uh, now, I may be right. I may be wrong. And it was a very tiny trade, um, like half a percent of net asset value or something. Um, Mm. but I've had a few questions on, you know, what could be interesting election trades. So that's just one I, I did put on yesterday. So, So, yeah, there's a couple of things that made me think about one is, so see if you're a 20 ball, like I'm just thinking about what's the, the P and L for that trade is like, what do you need? You need like a greater than two, two and a half percent move on a weekly basis, either up or down for you to start to see a break even or plus side on the PL would be my guess on that. Um, uh, I think it's a little less than that, but... Um, less, less, less? Okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, put... I, I could buy the November 28th for 41 bucks and gold's at whatever, it's, it's, it's at 1900. Um, mm-hmm. So if, if we just assume all the theta goes, then it, it needs to be at 1941 to... to, to well, actually, but that's obviously just the, the cool side. So there's the put side too. So you basically have to double it. Yeah. Right. I need 80 bucks. Right. That's what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was saying. Double it. So, um, so the way I think about it is, is a couple of different ways is that, um, yeah, I think when you have, you feel like if you personally feel there's a higher probability of binary event and being an outside move, then putting on a straddle is a great trade, especially if you feel, um, based on your modeling that you're buying it at a relatively low, uh, implied volatility. So that's because yeah, it wasn't you know, perfect, you, but it was relative. Yeah. I looked at the other assets and it seemed kind of the best one that also had a relatively pure relationship to the binary event. Um, mm. I'm putting a lot of relative t- relatives and potential. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as, as you have to, as you have to. And then, so, and then the other piece to it is being a little bit shorter term. Like you said, you have, you have data bleed now that you have to really worry about, but you have more gamma then. So there's trade-offs there and the way, um, but that's like why I example, also bought 20, I bought late December strikes too, because I wanted strike. Yeah. I wanted expiries <laughs> mid December, but they don't exist. Um, mm-hmm because I kind of was going with fed up's theory of there could be several weeks of not knowing. I actually think there will be a result, but 
Um, but it's possible that there's not. And, and actually that's another interesting scenario where I have no idea what gold will do if there's just giant uncertainty, but when there's giant uncertainty, right. gold tends to do quite well. Right. And like you said, there's, there's conditional probabilities, right? And that's the, that's the joy of it. And you're kind of overlapping conditional probabilities. So that's what you're trying to figure out. And that's uh, very intellectually stimulating. Um, the other thing that made me think about though, is sometimes to manage that data, like we use a, uh, we use a, we invest with Logica, which is uh, Mike Green and, and Wayne Himmelsign. And Wayne's the trader. And basically what Wayne's doing, he's constantly putting on, um, I'll, I'll give a kind of overview of, there's a lot more nuance to it, but he's constantly putting on straddles, uh, but then he's gamma scalping those positions on a daily basis. And what that just means is as the, uh, the underlying moves, he'll, he'll restrike uh, either the puts or calls uh, back to neutral. So you're trying to basically capture a little bit of that mean reversion. And what you know, good gamma scalpers do is they're essentially trying to hurdle their theta bleed. So they're trying to stay that you know delta neutral straddle and and long vega or long gamma. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, trying to offset some of that theta bleed by uh, restriking or toggling the position daily. So that that was just one thing that your position made me think of. But that's obviously much more advanced techniques. Um, the other thing though that I think that it was kind of hidden in there that's the 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 key piece to me is you said probably a half percent of your total book. Yeah, and it's half percent. Like people, yeah. <laughs> You know why People I really miss. made this trade? It was to just yeah. do a trade about the election. So I can say yeah. I've got a trade on the election and then I don't go and shove 20% into something stupid. So exactly. I'm trying to, I'm not saying I would do that because I think I'm experienced enough not to, but like, mm-hmm. like I have been overexposed in the past on certain positions. And, mm-hmm. um, and I also think it's a perfectly valid trade. It's just, um, uh, so, but I, I, I'm kind of someone that I know if I put something into it, um, this is making me sound like a complete noob and unprofessional, but like then I, um, yeah, then I'm kind of like satisfied. Oh, I've got a little bit of kind of skin in the game on this one. And to be honest, the rest of my portfolio I haven't touched. So, mm. but that, I don't think that's necessarily a noob thing. I think that's that's generally across the ballpark. And and part of it though is is not not only you know make sure you have a little skin in the game, but also position size. So you know we start the conversation with about you know maybe monetization heuristics about options, and that being the most difficult piece. The, the overarching difficult piece for everybody that nobody knows and we all talk about behind the scenes as, as hedge fund managers is position sizing. That's really the, the key to life is thinking about the holistic portfolio and, and your position size. And so what you just said, I'm sure over time in the last couple of years, as you put more trades on, I'm sure your position size is lowered because your, uh, your personal conviction, you realize is not, not quite what you think it is. And yeah, so on, that's on options. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and part of that, whether it's options or even other trades, and I think that's what uh, people miss about when they're following their favorite global macro trader is you really want to, if you could, you want to see their book and you want to see their position sizing and all of their positions and, and how those positions offset, how many are short ball, how many are long ball, you know, what percentage of the book are they risking on this trade over what time frame? And so, you know, position sizing is, is, is the really the $64,000 question. And, and that's the one that people should focus the most on is how do you position size your book? So that leads me on to Diego Perella, who I think is mm-hmm. fantastic. And yep. I love, although I want him to do, I want, I'll, I'll hopefully get him on the pod someday. Cause I want to actually talk through his whole soccer team. Cause it's always, kind of, <laughs> it's always not quite all of it. And in some ways it's easier yeah. to talk about um, when with Chris Cole's dragon portfolio. Um, I, I guess a basketball team makes sense, right? Cause there's five people and you've got five <laughs> yeah. buckets. Yeah. It's sort of easier. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 I'm also British, so I'm you know into soccer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, and and he talks about his goalkeepers, which in effect are the insurance policies. So you're talking um, 
long tail risk. So we're not talking like right tail risk on whatever, but I mean that he probably calls that a defender or something. I'm not totally sure, but, but on position sizing, he was saying with Keith McCullough recently, which is a, a free interview on Hedgeye. So it's kind of, anyone can go and see it. Um, if you can navigate their website. Um, he was saying he puts kind of five to 7% per year, roughly on these kind of, um, of NAV, like uh, of the starting NAV at the beginning of the year, like on insurance, these types of insurance policies. And then I kind of worked out, I'm actually pretty similar to that, but it got me thinking like, that feels like quite a high number, um, but maybe it's not, maybe it's a low number. Um, again, this is very dependent on what your stage of life is, what you're trying to achieve and all these things. But, um, you know, how, how do you, kind of, you know, how would you kind of um, comment on that? So. Well, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to that question, especially with what Diego's doing. And um, yeah. yeah, I had to send you my, my interview I did with Diego for Real Vision, where actually I started debating the players on the pitch because I actually played soccer my whole life too. So I was like, I was being much more charitable. I was like, the center midfielders are more like CTA trend. You know, the, your, your defenders are oh, more you, maybe you like- Oh, you actually got into that, did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll send that I to you. Because I played left so wing, I, I'm like, well, what are the yeah. left wingers? Like, you've yeah. forgotten the left wingers. The left footers are forgotten. Yeah, yeah maybe you're- uh, your, or that's like the, the euro dollar trade maybe when interest rates are higher or something like that right they're, like they're, you know like that's what i think about right and then like uh if i have virgil van dyke right do i need a, a, as many other defenders you know and, and is it the combination of, of virgil and alison that makes my my you know my goalkeeper better so I, I don't know we got we got deep into the weeds and for people that aren't in soccer or football this is I, I understand completely boring um <laughs> but uh so to get back to the the position sizing of it so um, historically, if you think about uh, Mart uh, Spitznagel um, at, Univ at um, Universa, so Mart Spitznagel is, is Nassim Taleb's you know, former partner. Uh, Taleb's still um, you know, associated with Spitznagel, but basically you know, Spitznagel's idea is if you hold 97% in, in just long linear S&P and you allocate, let's say, we're just used by the more nuance, but just averages. If you would then allocate 3% you know, a year for them to um, put on your put options throughout the year. And let's say they use a negative 15 to negative 20% attachment point, meaning any drawdown of the S&P beyond 15 or 20%, they're going to cover one for one. So what, what Spitznagel would tell you is that by holding 97% exposure to S&P and bleeding 3% a year in, in these tail risk put options, then over time and multiple business cycles, that's going to compound your wealth better. Cause like, as I started at the beginning, you're reducing the variance at the portfolio level. So, um, so if they're, if they're colloquially saying, you know, let's have a 3% bleed that you have to pay every year. Um, but you're, you got to think about though, that's in combination with being long S and P. So if, if long S and P is up 10% and you're paying a 3% bleed net net, you're up 7% and you're waiting for that risk off event to happen. So I think that maybe part of your question was, okay, if Spitzangle is bleeding 3%, but now Diego's talking about spending five to 7% a year on premium. Is that too much or too aggressive? Well, it's it's a little more complicated than that, because uh, once again, what we went back to is uh, Diego's using you know these over the counter counter ISDA contracts with investment banks where he has very exotic options. Um, so there's two things that can happen um, when you when you're using the counterparty risk of an investment bank. One, you're able to buy you know you were talking about buying you know two two and a half year leaps. Well, if you have the ISDA contract and the over the counter uh, trades with investment banks, you can buy seven to ten year leaps, and that's what. Uh, Jerry Hayworth and 36 South do they're they're let's just call them more vanilla trades but you're able to get much 
uh, longer out in tenor duration by those seven to 10 year leaps. Right. Cause I think GOD can, conks out at about three, three and a half years. So, right. Right. So you can get like, you can buy even, yeah, you start talking about interest rates, gold, you can get 20, 30 years if you want them. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody's willing to write that paper at the end of the day. The question is, are, are they going to pay out when you need it? Um, and then Diego's trades are what we call much, a little bit more exotic uh, trades that maybe have a, a combination of events, which are either, you know, binary or dual digitals or, or knock in, knock out trades, uh, which means like he might put a trade on an options trade that says if, if gold is up and the dollar is both up, then that may pay out, uh, you know, 15 to one instead of being a, a five to one trade on gold up. So he's going for, you know, if you combine um, two probabilities together, you may get higher payouts of let's say 20 to 50 to one instead of more vanilla payouts of like five to one or 10 to one. Uh, but then you need bo- like a, like a parlay bet in sports. You need both of them to pay out, you know, right. to hit it's, that. It's like an accumulator in sports. Exactly, like accumulator in sports. We yeah, accumulator parlay, etc. So, yeah. what what you would then say? So if he's putting you know five to seven percent of his book a year on that premium, it's also not just that year. I I know for a fact like he's buying multiple years out. So he may be spending that premium each year, but he's divvying that up uh, over multiple tenors, even even to very long duration stuff. But also you think about too, is he's, he can roll those positions as well. So yeah. it's not like he's, he's, he knows the, you know, let's say worst case scenario is somehow he completely bleeds out that premium. It's like five to 7% a year. But as you know, with, with rolling those positions and getting pops of volatility here and there and, and dynamically adjusting those positions, he's not likely to bleed out five to 7% a year. So it's, 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 a, it's knowing your worst case scenario, as we said, is that debit card investing, right? You know the worst you can lose is that premium. But then if you're a dynamic active manager, you can even do better than just losing the whole premium. Yeah, and I should apologize. It was an impossible question. But I, I, but I, <laughs> but it, I wanted to illustrate that sometimes people hear these numbers on podcasts or Real Vision or wherever it might be. Right. And then they... Go, I hope they go to some form of model they might have and they start sticking in numbers and you know they think, oh, well, that's what Diego said, so that must be good. And, and there's a lot more nuance to it all. Um, so it, as always, like, you've got to work out what's right for you. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about was kind of left tail versus right tail because a lot of people kind of, I think, get in their mind basically long vols are all about left tail and basically tail risk and when the shit hits the fan and this type of stuff. I mean, but interestingly, of course, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like gold leaps, for example, that's very much a right tail um, mm-hmm. kind of bet. And, and, and this, you know, maybe it was two months ago, we started seeing, well, it was originally the, uh, the NASDAQ at first. You had spot prices going up at the same time as volatility increasing which is kind of an interesting kind of particular moment. Um, and um, so, but, um, so, so, but again, of course, anyone that had like kind of calls on NASDAQ would have done super duper well with that. So what, how should people think about the kind of right tail world of options um, versus I think the left tail where there's probably on average kind of better understanding? Sure. I, and I think about um, this may be oversimplification of definitions um, because I think like Chris Cole Artemis has, has kind of popularized the, the long volatility term. Um, so historically, we think about the 
the put options on, let's say, S&P exposure, that's your tail risk, right? That's people that manage tail risk. And then we think about if you're dynamically trading both the left tail and the right tail with, you know, your algorithms or whatever heuristics you're using, that's more of a long volatility trading, the way we look at it kind of. Um, so that just that's just like a basic scenario. So part of part of managing right tail, like you said, gold's a right tail. Um, you could say inflation's a right tail. Um, but we also think like, let's just talk about the S&P 500 and that basis there is like you have the left tail, which is your tail risk of the market shanking off. Um, but what we haven't seen um, historically very often is like you are starting to allude to is volatility up and S&P up. So people forget, you know, during that's what I was saying, that 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 phase shift or bimodal distribution of VIX is when you're in a low volatility environment, uh, VIX and the S&P are negatively correlated. And so people start to think, oh, that means S&P down VIX up. No, the VIX is just about variance, both to downside and upside. It's just we usually see larger variance to the downside. So if you start having uh, large updates in the S&P, you can have vol up, S&P up. And then we start talking about that, that right tail of S&P uh, volatility that's on the upside. And people go, well, great, but you know, if I'm long S&P and then I have my tail risk for my left tail, but I'm holding linear long S&P, then I don't have to worry about my right tail. Um, but I think it's a little, little differently than that is that, um, you know, if we have markets ripping higher and volatility ripping higher, then yes, you are riding that linearly with your S&P options, but you have to think about monetization, right? And so that's why I, I'm more, more interested in the right tail options on, on S&P as a monetization heuristic, because, you know, as the market rips, let's say it doubles from here and we have market at 6,000. Well, that just means you just create a larger air pocket for when it does break off from there. And so if you can monetize both those moves up to the, up to the, uh, on the upside on the right tail and monetize those moves, and then you're building your inventory or restriking your downside of your left tail, you can, you can capture a little bit of both. As long as volatility is expanding, um, you're kind of getting a win-win, so to speak. Right. And also, I'm going to say something controversial, but everyone loves to argue about deflation and inflation and yeah. let's not get into all that, but let's just do the thought experiment that currencies get debased in a way that is bad. Right. And, and in effect that pretty much guarantees just because commodity prices rocket up that you're going to get inflation. Um, having that right tail say on the S and P that's actually very interesting for hedging against something like that. Um, so if someone's listening and they're a big deflationista, that's then they don't think this is going to happen. Fine, um, but you're going to get some good convexity with those positions. Um, and I mean, in the '70s, the um, I mean, the stock market did okay, but it got crushed when you adjust it for inflation, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the '70s is a tough one for me, and. Um, just I was excited to talk to you because we, we, we both think it's similar terms about uh, epistemological humility, right? And the hard part is when you're backtesting a lot of ideas, uh, most people are going to use like a 20th century backtest. Like the farthest they're going to go back is like 100 years or, or et cetera, or even 40 or 50 years, right? And what we forget is in the 20th century, we went from you know roughly a billion people in the workforce to 5 billion. Um, we had a very unique scenario in the 20th century, and that's kind of a, just a, an insanely large, long GDP event. Right. And, you know, if we're at, you know, peak population, it takes time for work that through, we can have a very different environment in the next hundred years. And then also if you're, you're backtesting things, you know, 
30, 40 years, you're, you're, you're hitting that baby boom generation, which quite frankly is the luckiest generation in history. Um, but there's also, you know, there's different um, structural dynamics to that, that 70 style stagflation. You know, you have the, you know, the poor post-war boom, you have, you know, baby boomers coming to market, you have a large expansion in that, um, you know, both on the demand side um, versus that, you know, cost push inflation. And so, you know, you have all these unique dynamics and then probably bad monetary policy, et cetera. You know, everybody can debate that to the end of the day where, you know, you can't necessarily look at the seventies for what the future is going to be. Right. Like I, I think people look historically and, you know, they always use the quotes like, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, but like, you know, all that stuff doesn't necessarily help you. So we, we really think about having like both long volatility and short volatility positions on the same time and rebalancing frequently. That's what helps you compound your wealth. Cause I can't, I can't be certain of any of those events. And like you said, everybody loves right now debating deflation or inflation. And I'm, I'm much more charitable. Like, of course I don't believe in CPI, but I always ask people that say that I'm like, okay, well, can you define a basket of CPI for me? Like if you had to do it, right? And nobody can because it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. So, I mean, I think the discussion is much more nuanced and complicated. And quite frankly, you can't even really even touch on it in a two or three hour conversation. So I think that, you know, a lot of the debates are, are falling by the wayside of nuance and, and they, they're very uh, simplistic forms of argument. Right. And on that CPI point, it's kind of funny because I've tried that too. You like, and you always get to the position where whoever you're debating it with is admitting that you have to change how the CPI is defined over time because over decades, it just doesn't make sense for it to be consistent um, because of, I mean, just the way we live our lives is drastically different from the fifties to the sixties to the seventies to now. Um, so yeah, to your point, there is no one way of doing it. Um, and um, in, um, and that's what, oh, I was I, sorry. I, I remember it because I I probably skirted your question, but I was thinking about because that's the best argument for gold, right? Is the 1970s, and so I'm like, do you have to thread that needle of that very specific path dependency for gold to to rip up the way you need it to do? And then it's about your position sizing, and if your position sizing according to the return in the 70s is that accurate? That's what all I'm asking. I, I really right. don't know. Um, but I think the counter argument to that is simply that um, well. It's not simply, it's that if governments are just hell-bent on destroying fiat by printing lots of money, and listeners are well aware, I understand that the money doesn't directly go into the M2, but some of it leaks out. Um, but if governments are going to go down this path of MMT and all this stuff, which looks pretty likely, uh, then you're just going to have a long-term grind down of fiat currencies versus hard assets, whatever your favorite hard asset is um and um which would give a kind of you know long-term bull case for gold um and i would argue bitcoin and indeed lots of other things that um did a whole podcast on this a few months ago um, yeah but i wonder um and i because i listen to your podcast and i always wonder about this thing like this is one of my favorite bugbears nowadays is like somebody said you know everybody says they're they're printing money they're printing money they're printing money but as you know you study you know from uh jeff snyder to to brent johnson and all this stuff like I, you know, or Warren Mosler is, you know, when people argue MMT, they're really arguing, right, the, uh, the political ramifications of maybe UBI. They're not really talking about monetary operations, because if Correct, you look yeah. at Warren Mosler or anything else, it's like, we've been in MMT for Well, it also, there now. might be via a central bank digital currency, and then, then, then there won't be any, well, in effect, they're then going to cut the banks out. So you're not going right. to have the bond market working like it does. Um, right. And then that would change part of it is, again, yeah. so... Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I get that 
argument from the you know digital currency or you know blockchain side but I, i'm just saying like right now when i whenever i hear uh you know because we were talking about the beginning the prohibitive nomenclature and there's a lot of complexity to the investment space and so um there's a lot of fear on the individual side about you know sounding you know like they know what they're talking about so when i hear people printing say about you know the feds printing money i'm like to me that's like you're trying to sound smart maybe you haven't looked into it as much i'm not saying that like the monetary operation side that uh, let's say Jeff Snyder or, or Brent Johnson would look at that says, you know, it's really, you know, collateral asset swaps and they're not printing money. They're trying to give the confidence that they're printing money to try to raise inflation. They're like, I don't know if they're right either, but I'm saying if there's arguments on both sides, you really need to look into those instead of maybe just repeating, you know, headlines in a newspaper. And that's what drives me kind of crazy on a daily basis is hearing people repeat headlines that don't have a uh, deep knowledge of a space to know that there's more nuance than that. Right. So, I mean, I spent a lot of time talking with all those guys and people like Steve. Right, I know you have. And and like, you know what's really annoying is it's just so easy to say printing money. And and it annoys me when other people (laughs) say it, but then I say it because it's just, you know, Fed goes burr, right? But I'm I'm, I'm not expecting the mainstream media to be able to explain this to to people. Um, But um, yeah, no, it it is fascinating. But I think the central bank digital currency stuff is... um, vastly underappreciated what they're really trying to achieve on it. Um, and, um, and you'd completely replumb the entire system if you, well, if, if you don't need, um, basically the treasury doesn't need to sell to primary dealers um, because they can just create liabilities in the Fed balance sheet that go straight into your Fed account um, in, on your phone. It's a complete replumbing of everything. They could even claim it's not government debt. I bet that type of stuff's gonna happen too. Um, that's why I think, you know, well, long-term hard assets is probably, um, an interesting play at the moment. So what do you think though happens in that scenario? Like I always think about, um, utopias and dystopias, right? Every dystopia came out of utopia. And so like Bitcoin's a utopian ideal, let's just say. And, and so if the unintended consequence of that is, uh, government digital currencies, um, what do you think happens to, to Bitcoin in that scenario? If, if you basically, as, as I look at it, you're like, you just like you did, is you're, you're redoing the plumbing of FinTech or just uh, monetary operations from, from you know, the Fed and the central bank. You know, what happens to Bitcoin in that scenario? Yeah, that's a good question. So first thing is central bank digital currencies will not use blockchains. So they're going to be centralized databases and the US government will control or the Fed will control it. So it's not really a blockchain, just for any blockchain right. purists out there who are, Right. So they're losing that. their mind right now, uh, yelling right. at the podcast. And there's all yeah. sorts of people listening. So like, I, whatever I say, I'm going to annoy someone. Um, exactly. <laughs> which is part of the fun, I guess. And so um, I think it, 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 a lot of it's going to depend on the how can you... So let's say you have a Fed coin on your phone. Can I very simply use that to buy Bitcoin? Well, it's a question we don't know the answer to. And that's an incredibly basic question. It's in effect, the new version of fiat to crypto. And the weakness in the crypto world right now is its interface with fiat um, in terms of being this kind of utopia. Um, I do think it will highlight the hardness of something like Bitcoin having 21 million and whatever anyone says, it is ridiculously difficult to change that 21 million number. It is not impossible, but I could talk for an entire podcast on how hard it is. So it's very, 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 very difficult. Um, so, but 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it's going to raise awareness of digital currencies in general, although, again, the, the blockchain purists won't like that because the, the digital currencies, the central bank ones are not blockchains. Um, but there's just so many unknowns. Um, I mean, you know, Powell the other day was saying that basically in no rush, you know, in China, it's already launched in several regions. Um, and, you know, ECB seems a little in the middle. You've got the UK and Australia looking at this. Um, there just seems to be a raft of noise in the last couple of months on CBDCs. Um, but I mean, ultimately, Bitcoin is the ultimate, well, I think the ultimate kind of way out of that system. Um, and it's, um, I mean, you know, gold's been around, what, five, 6,000 years, and they've tried to ban it a few times in different countries. Australia tried, US tried. It's pretty hard to ban Bitcoin. You have to shut the internet down. But that doesn't mean you can't make it very difficult for people to use it. So I also think it's a $200 billion asset. Does anyone care right now? But if it was a $20 trillion asset, you might get very different reactions from governments. Um, mm. And I wonder about, yeah, like two things along that. Like when everybody thinks either, you know, like you said, as a $200 billion asset, it's like everybody thinks it's going to, you know, a million dollars a coin or to zero. And I always wonder like, what if this is it? What if it's this middling ground right here? You know, maybe, you know, it can two X from here, whatever, three X, but like, yeah. what if it's, it's more of a middling size and, and nobody really talks about that option C. Um, the other one, and I'm, I'm going to tie this back around probably hopefully for us is that um, we were talking about the other day, actually through a conversation between uh, my partner, Taylor Pearson and um, Mike Green and three and the three of us were talking about, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the definitions that people keep using for money, right? And they, they're conflating two things with like a store of wealth and a unit of exchange. And a store of wealth is very different from a unit exchange. And you might actually want a unit of exchange to be an, an inflating currency to, to you know, bring up the velocity of money, especially exactly, in a capitalistic yes. environment. Yes. And so it's like, who, who really knows, right? And so that's why, you know, if a store of wealth may make sense and digital gold, all those arguments might make sense. But coming back though, and I think this is where we'll probably head maybe next is that it's about position sizing, right? And so, you know, it's, it's a question of in my holistic portfolio, how much do I hold of gold and Bitcoin if I'm worried about fiat, right? And so, you know, if, if gold or Bitcoin are an inflationary hedge or a mild debasement, I mean, all those things are arguable. I just, I, I think about it more in like a, a, a really low probability event of a full-on debasement, right, uh, of, of let's say the U.S. dollar. Um, what do I think the likelihood or do I need an argument or do I need to tell you the path dependency? No, because I'm holding an option, right? And so if, if I think there you have a full-on debasement of a currency, you know, how much gold or Bitcoin do I need to hold to offset that, assuming they paid out, right? Or if, or if uh, Bitcoin maximalists are right and Bitcoin does become the currency, how much do I have to hold to make sure my portfolio um, keeps up with that necessary inflation or pairs trade against the currency that I, I live, work, and The and, answer is not very much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so that's what uh, the arguments are, are moot to me. It's, it's an options trade, right? Tell me about the portfolio construction. Tell me about how much you want to hold. And, and everybody wants to argue about the path dependency. It's kind of the, the, uh, the issue I have with global macro is it's a siren song of intellectual frameworks. It's a beautiful thing. But at the end of the day, they're talking about the future and none of us know, right? So talk to me about your position sizing in your book, not about the narrative, uh, but we all fall for the narrative. We can't help ourselves. And we also want to create a beautiful narrative. But so it's more about like, okay, is that 1% Bitcoin and 10% gold? And what I'm, if I'm worried about multi-generational wealth and, and things that have happened throughout history, is that enough to cover, um, you know, my purchase power parity? 
that's the way I look at it. And, and maybe I'm a little bit unique or different, or I, I, I doubt it. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair argument. But if you're, but it depends what your investment goal is. So if you want to exactly. protect your PPP, then those numbers you said, are, I mean, maybe a little bit more Bitcoin than that, but like they're probably ballpark, right? Um, right. If you want to go on the generate alpha um, and um, you think, you know what, I'm willing to put, let's just make numbers up, right? But like, um, a quarter of my wealth in Bitcoin because I think is a shot that it could do a hundred X or whatever. Um, and even though that's maybe only 10% probability, um, I'm willing to take that bet and I don't think it can go to zero. Um, and again, maybe anything can go to zero, I guess it's possible, but, um, so yeah, I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and, and that's a big function of people's age, risk appetite and all, all that good stuff. So, um, and you brought up earlier, like, you know, the heuristics of monetization and taking chips off the table. Like I, I laugh about it all the time. It's like I'm, I'm monetized, let's say the majority of my Bitcoin at a 10 X. Right. And so people that are hundred or 200 X are making fun of me, but that's, uh, that's, that's not realized PNL. They haven't crystallized those gains. So I really wonder 20, 30 years from now, I want to see the hands raised that are actually monetized at a 10 X return and we'll see what happens then. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I hundred X Bitcoin and well, when it was at 20,000 in effect, and um, I did not sell any, but this was at the end of 17. And um, it, it was um, this whole wave of just mental difficult things that you had to kind of get through. And, and I was a much less experienced trader then. And, um, but that set me up now to actually literally write down when I'm selling exactly how many coins and at exactly what levels um if it does have a run which it might not do and you're right maybe it is just like you know what i'm gonna chill at 10k for the next 10 years um and um yeah and the volatility will grind down to 10 um yeah who knows it's possible but i i suspect it's going to be a little more binary either way right um, but i think what's interesting that we're we're both hopefully hitting on is that when you think about options trading global macro and especially when you're you're buying options you don't need to be right about the narrative right if you position size accordingly you have a a, a convex asymmetric uh payout if you're right if you're wrong you know what you're losing and that's what the key is is like getting rid of all the narrative bs and just having a a, a long asymmetric you know convex payout if you're right yeah i agree with that totally all right we've covered a lot any any kind of final thoughts, concluding remarks? You know, floss regularly? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, like my dentist is always like telling me to do that. Um, I just think because I don't have any like general advice, right? Like I just, I, uh, you know, we built New Defund because uh, Taylor and I were trying to scratch our own itch. You know, we wanted a better example of, of long volatility and tail risk exposure using an ensemble of managers. So I was trying to like acutely, uh, you know, accommodate my, my own portfolio. And so like you're saying, there's a lot of nuance to questions. Like you, uh, I would need to know your portfolio, your life goals, you know, where you're at in life, all of that stuff to know how to hedge your risk. I think we can, we can get down to it a little bit better if like you, you're trying to, um, hedge basis risk, you know, like if, if you have, you know, 50% exposure to S&P, there's a way to hedge that, you know, those sorts of things. But other than that, there's a lot of uh, nuance to these conversations. It's also why I enjoy your podcast because you, you delve into the nuance and you ask great questions and, and 
like me, you have the insatiable curiosity and, and you know, if, if given enough time, um, and enough questions, right. You could suck less over time. It's not like we ever really become experts at things. We just get less shitty at them every day, hopefully. And, and that's what I'm striving for. And I, I know you are too. So I was really excited to have a conversation with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. If we, it's a good way of describing it, get less shitty over time. This is very inspiring. This podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like I and that, let me be clear. By the way, I I know we have a a long volatility terrorist fund, but I am not preternaturally long volatility. Like what I I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and um so I, I'm opt I'm optimistic by nature, but I've also have experience enough to go you know that that liquidity dries up and markets go down. So it's it's about pairing the two, right? I don't think it's 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 a form of realism, right? Where you know you can if you're an entrepreneur, you're incredibly optimistic. And so you maybe need to hedge that with a little bit of pessimism and tail risk. And then maybe then you end up at, at, in a realist position over time. It's, and so, yeah, I don't want to be all, all, all dark and gloomy. Um, I hope it comes across that I'm actually <laughs> I'm just pretty, pretty jubilant person in general. But. Okay. But if someone's listening and they are an accredited investor, then uh, what's the easiest way to contact you? Just like DM you on Twitter or? Um, yeah. So we're, or? um, um, my Twitter is Jason Mutiny. Um, uh, we also have um, our Twitter's uh, at Mutiny Fund for the for the fund. Uh, you can also find us at info at Mutiny Fund. Also, if you go to just MutinyFund.com, um, we have a list of all our podcasts. You can also find them in all your podcast players where we do a, a deep dive with a lot of the managers we're invested in. That's really uh, fascinating if you really want to geek out about this stuff. Oh, and yeah. Also I, on I've media... listened to a lot of those and people should listen to them, but, but they are getting in the weeds. So like, yeah, that's, definitely. The, that's the whole point. So, yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's never going to be a mainstream podcast. Uh, that we have the the media page on our website has a lot of interviews that uh, Taylor and I have done um, uh, in on various platforms. Um, so I think the, there's usually a treasure trove at mutinyfund.com for you to to find out more information. Cool, good stuff. Well, thank you. I mean, we covered a lot, so <laughs> um, but I think we I think we achieved what we set out to do, which was basically just talk about vols. So. So yeah, we'd love, love to get you back on another time. And um, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it. And I was excited to be on. So you came through as always. <laughs>